I looked up and I said to one of these NICU nurses, I said, she's throwing up a lot. Like, is that normal? And she came over and looked at it and she goes, you have, you had polyhydramnios, right? I saw on your chart. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, I think we need to take the baby to, to get looked at. And then they came, someone came to take her to the NICU. Another hour goes by and they say, okay, mom, okay, dad, we're going to take you down to the NICU now to see baby. I'm like, okay. So they get me in a wheelchair and they take me to the NICU. At this point, I'm two hours postpartum. I have no idea what they're doing to the baby. Why? No clue. Um, they, they park me at the NICU and um, the nurse that parked my wheelchair looked at one of the other nurses and said, they don't know. And the, the room kind of went silent. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Hi, I'm Liz. I am a mother of two from New Jersey and a content creator on Instagram, where you can find me cracking all kinds of mom jokes. But beneath that humor, there's actually a whole lot that's gone on since I've become a mom. Um, and I want to thank you, Cynthia and Trisha, for not only giving me an opportunity to talk about my experiences, but for all the really important work that you guys do for women. So thank you for having me today. We're very happy to have you, Liz. You're one of the funniest accounts on Instagram. <laughs> in this community. And the irony is you have a very intense birth story to share. But why don't you tell everyone your page first? I do. Yes. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at Liz Eidelman. My last name is E-I-D-E-L-M-A-N. So I'm going to be telling the story today of my first daughter, Indy. She is four. Um, I had a very textbook pregnancy with her up until about 28 weeks. Um, I remember on Christmas Eve, it was that I took myself to labor and delivery right around 28 weeks because I was having these contractions. And so I ran to L&D. I was under the care of like an OB and a big corporate group. Um, so I ran to labor and delivery and they said to me, they did an ultrasound, they did a cervical check and they were like, you know, it just seems like you have a very angry uterus. And I was like, oh, what does that mean? And they were like, you have a condition called polyhydramnios. There's a lot of excess amniotic fluid around the baby. And this can mean like a number of things, but we're going to send you home on modified bed rest. Um, right now, it's not making any changes to your cervix. So we're going to send you home and you're going to follow up with your OB. Did you tell them you don't have an angry anything? <laughs> I didn't, but I'd love to call them now after listening to the down to birth show. I, I just, I, I can't stand when they do that with language, but it doesn't even make any sense. What is an angry uterus? I mean, what what is mean? that even supposed to mean? I know it. I mean, I guess it was so like irritated that it was contracting a lot. And I will be honest, they gave me some IV fluids and that seemed to help kind of calm things down a little bit physically, but mentally I was like, what is going on here? They just sent me home on modified bed rest on Christmas Eve. Okay. So maybe you um, didn't actually have an angry uterus. You were just a little dehydrated. That might've been a better way to approach it. 
Could have been, yes. Um, and I'm sure all the fluid around the baby really didn't help. So fast forward, I went to my OB, I followed up, and um, they confirmed that the fluid level was still higher than normal and that I would be having weekly ultrasounds. So from weeks 28 to 36, I had ultrasounds once a week at maternal fetal medicine. And every time, you know, everything looked good with the baby. The baby seemed fine. And they told me, I don't remember the exact statistic, but the doctor had said, like, listen, 60% of the time, this is because a mom has gestational diabetes, which you don't. 30% of the time, it's for like no reason at all. So that's probably what it is. Or 10% of the time, it signifies a problem with the baby. But your baby looks good, right? So we never really thought anything of it. They took me off of that modified bed rest because... I was just kind of living with this angry uterus and we were fine. <laughs> and um, we fast forward the last couple of weeks, my blood pressure began to creep up. And when very early labor was beginning at 39 plus two, I believe it was with lots of fluid and my angry uterus, I ran to the hospital thinking that it was time. And it turns out that I went way too early. Um, so they checked me, I was only two centimeters. And they had said, like, at this point, we might have sent you home. But since your BP is a little high, we're going to keep you. And they started with the whole like, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Your blood my blood pressure. pressure. Yes, yes. My blood pressure was a bit high. It wasn't preeclampsia high, but it was high enough to be considered gestational hypertension. Um. So at the time, you know, I was so happy to be staying and like happy to have this induction because I just wanted to meet my baby. And I truly went into this first birth with a like roll with the punches, do whatever they say kind of attitude. Um, so they, they started me on a pill to ripen my cervix. And then the following morning, they began the Pitocin and a few hours into the Pitocin, who was begging for the epidural. <laughs> um, so they broke my water. Um, and that was crazy because there was so much fluid. Um, I'll, I will backtrack and say that um, amniotic fluid levels like AFI readings are, I believe, between five and 25 is considered normal. Now, with my second baby, who was who was healthy, spoiler alert, <laughs> the first one wasn't, um, my second baby, the amniotic fluid index never went over 14. That was the highest reading we ever got. For my first daughter, it was consistently at 25 or over. And I believe the highest reading we ever got was like a 32. So I was real big. And we thought I'm only five feet tall. Like we joked that maybe the baby had nowhere to go and I just carry really big. Right. Mm -hmm. So when they broke my water, um, it was so much fluid. It was like, it was crazy. Um, and it was after that, it was really like a typical cascade of interventions I would come to realize. Um, so as soon as I dilated fully, I was instructed to do some practice pushes to bring the baby down, which I realize now was kind of like the cause of everything that transpired until my baby was born. Um, so I ultimately I pushed for three hours and an OB came in who I had never met. So like I said, I was with a big corporate group and I had met a lot of the OBs in my office, but I hadn't met the ones from other offices. So of course she was someone from another office who I had never met. The room was flooded with med students. I mean, there had to be like a dozen people in there and I felt like a circus freak, honestly. But I thought very little of this all in the moment. And I, I only really recognized those feelings after I had fully processed my birth story. Um, 
it was a Friday night and the people that were attending my birth were all clearly getting bored because this was taking a long time. Um, most notably the OB who the had dear. one, the poor dear who had one hand at my perineum and used the other hand to like text and play candy crush. I kid you're kidding. You not. I kid candy you not. Crush. I kid you not. Um, so like what would happen is, you know, my daughter that would is, that is so I, I can't, I can't, I'm sorry. My, I, I know. I'm not, my brain isn't even functioning right now because I'm so angry. I know. Sometimes I just need I'm a just minute. Gonna, I'm just going to sit here while we're doing this and I'm just going to, I cannot even imagine how that yep. felt. Yep. And everybody was talking all those about people like in the room and the doctor was playing candy crush. What kind of, what, this is what this, this is what this doctor does. In their free time, Trisha, when you and I are reading all the research about birth, by the way, right? They're addicted right, to right. Candy Crush. They can't even put it down when a woman is in labor. Yeah, I mean, think about that. Yeah, it was like make it more obvious that you don't that you want to be anywhere but here, please. And like, I and I and I made that comment about me and Trisha because I, you know, just this morning I was reading articles of Rachel Reed. Like there is so many, there is so many hardworking people out there actually trying to figure out whatever research is out there that's good quality to see what is best for women and how to improve maternal health. And this is the person that society calls the, the only expert, not, mm-hmm. not an expert, the expert, like, you know, either you're a doctor or you're not a doctor, but they're playing candy crush. I'm, I just, I'm sorry, but it's just, it's just at a whole nother level when they're doing it while touching your body. Like, it's one thing we know this goes on in the call room or in the nurse's station or the, you know, wherever the providers are hanging out when they're not with the woman, but to be there at your side. It shows they're addicted. Yeah. That's what it shows. They and you know what? It down. It's not just it shows that they're addicted. It shows that they have zero respect. Well, but zero. That, yes. Yes. And it's funny because when you, you know, when I first started, I'm, I'm four years out now. So when I first started to really like process this birth story, I was thinking to myself, as you guys know, just from like following my Instagram account, I'm a very funny person. Just naturally, I deal with things by using humor, right? And so as I am today, I know the listeners can't see me, but full beat, full face of makeup on. Um, I had a full face of makeup on when I was giving birth to my daughter. And so we were all kind of talking, me and the dozen people in the room were cracking jokes about how good my face looked, even though I was like trying to push a baby out. So like I was kind of laissez-faire about it and very much um, trying to bring like this lightheartedness to a situation that clearly wasn't. Um, But now that I'm looking back, I'm like, that still doesn't give this doctor to go ahead to like play games. And when I was first processing my story, I, I really blamed myself. I was like, you know, maybe I was just giving off this vibe that like that was okay. And the more I thought about it and the more educated I became, (laughs) I'm like, no, it absolutely is not even close to being okay. And I can't imagine how, many other times she's done this. To Even other if you were playing Candy Crush yourself, it wouldn't be okay for her to be doing it. Right. And I will come back around. I don't want to give too much away yet, but I will come back around to the Candy Crush thing um, because there's another aspect of it that you guys are going to um, be interested to hear, but we, we will come back around to that. Well, I, I just also want to say you revealed a lot about your personality and your disposition when you said that you did that ultrasound and they they finished the discussion with you by saying 10% of the time, it's very serious. But 
nothing indicates that you're in that 10%. And you basically said, okay, when I know that I and many other women would be like, well, how do you know? What are you looking for? What would be the markers? What should I keep Mm -hmm. an eye out? You didn't indicate any of that anxiety. So you definitely have the gift of rolling with the punches, which I think is Mm. a, is a very nice quality to, to live with. I think back then I did. I think now I don't. Oh, this this but has changed you. Yeah, okay. this has changed it but, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. It actually made my second pregnancy kind of like really full of anxiety. But yeah, I don't know where was I. So yeah, it, when it came to the pushing phase for three hours, my daughter would kind of like crown and recede, crown and recede. And I kept asking this OB for some guidance and some information as to like how much progress I was making. And she was purposely withholding information from me. And it was most likely that she didn't want me to become discouraged or or whatever, but it was very unhelpful for me. And I even, you know, I, I was left completely in the dark about what was happening with my body and with my birth. And I even remember that that there was a mirror that they talked about um, in the like tour, the tour that we took of the labor delivery ward. They said, you can use a mirror if you want. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to need all that. And in hindsight, I'm like, they didn't even offer me the mirror, even at that point when I was saying, hey, what's going on down there? Like, why is this taking so long? Um, so anyway, in the moment, I was just in no place to ask for these things for myself and of a dozen people standing around the room, absolutely no one was helpful. Um, so in hindsight, I realized now that this environment where I was on display and not being treated as competent and capable is precisely why that pushing stage needed so much intervention. So I wasn't ready. My baby wasn't ready. Everything was forced. And I think my body was really in fight or flight mode. Um, so you had your bag of waters broken. Mm-hmm. Like hours prior. Yeah. Hours before, which we know isn't helpful in progressing the labor. And especially when there is a lot of fluid, um, you may, you know, that can set your baby up for malposition of the head. Right. Which would then impact your pushing. Right. Yeah. I mean, the OB was honestly awful. Like I was 24. This is a good quote. Cynthia was like enraged by this one too. Um, The OB was saying, like I said, why am I throwing up right now? I was 24 hours without food and I was vomiting through what I know now is transition, right? And instead of telling me that this is common, that this does happen, she actually said to me, well, maybe if you would lay off the ice chips. Yes, Yes, speechless. I know. Um, So yeah, same OB was the one that said, I'm just going to make us a little more room. And then she proceeded to cut an episiotomy without my consent. Were all these people um, still in the room watching? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, everybody was and watching. why, why, why was there such a, um, I know people in the room. <laughs> why did you have such an audience? There were a lot of med students and they were all invited in to watch my delivery. You all have been asking, and now we are delivering. After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can actually utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels. And if you know us, you know that we care about health from a whole body perspective, including the mental, physical, and emotional well-being, and Needed does too. 
Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Their product lineup is not only effective, but it's convenient and easy to use. We, Cynthia and I, are loving their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. Needed covers it all. From vitamin D to probiotics to magnesium, omegas, iron, they even have subscription plans specific for prenatal, postpartum, preconception, fertility, and yep, for men as well. So if you've been waiting to get the perfect prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter the code down to birth for 20% off your first order. And so, did you know at the time you had the right to kick all of them out of the room? I did not. I did not. And I had no idea. You can kick anyone out of your hospital room in the United States. And did they ask? Doctors? No. No, they, they never ask. asked. Nope. Well, this, um, is, this so they, is how they get away with it. They, they want to say it's implied consent, but it's not consent at all. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com and cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed, a radically better prenatal vitamin. 
Need its nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy to take vanilla powder. Perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, Head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. Right. Well, I mean, when you go into the hospital to give birth, you sign your whole life away saying yeah. like, but just we, so everyone we can knows, do whatever. Yeah. And they can't just so everyone knows you can't actually sign your life away. So to speak, you can't sign away your rights. So even right. if you sign paperwork that says, I'll let people in the room, I'll let this doctor attend me, I'll let them do whatever they deem necessary. Even if you've already signed that, it doesn't mean anything. You can still say at any moment in your birth, I do not consent. No one's going to teach you that, obviously. Like most, most women don't know this, but you can say, I don't consent to this. Even if you signed it, if you were to sue them because they took action after you said, I don't consent they can't hold up that paper and say, but she signed away her rights over here. It's still right. your right. I know it's easy for me to say this to you now after you've been through all this. And I also know you know this now. I'm just saying this because we have listeners and I don't want them to think, oh, I hope that doesn't happen to me that the right. room gets flooded after because I've signed that paperwork. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it took so much um, thinking and research that honestly, I was not presented with um, as a young pregnant first time mom. Um, they don't, you know, they don't tell you any of this stuff. You have to, you have to really try and learn it yourself um, and educate yourself. And I realized in hindsight that the um, whole go with the flow plan was the worst case scenario for me because they really went, you know, we really went with their flow. <laughs> that was for sure. Right. Um, you know, cut to my daughter being born. They, they offered me a vacuum several times, which was the only thing that I was ever really given a choice about. And I declined it multiple times because, because they said that someone from the NICU team or a couple of people from the NICU team would have to be in the room. And I was already, I was like, there's already so many people in here. Like, can we not? So um, I finally caved, I guess you could say. Um, and we used the vacuum and it worked. And within minutes, my daughter Indy was born. And then it felt like everybody in the room kind of like disappeared immediately for except for a few stragglers. And those were the the people from the NICU that would end up being very important in making my daughter's diagnosis. So long story short, they put her on my chest for like two or three minutes. Then they took her over to the warmer to like weigh her, get her cleaned off. And then they brought her back to me. And once they brought her back to me, she was really regurgitating a lot of that amniotic fluid, like all over my chest. And so I said, I looked up and I said to one of these NICU nurses, I said, she's throwing up a lot. Like, is that normal? And she came over and looked at it and she goes, you have, you had polyhydramnios, right? I saw on your chart. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, I think we need to take the baby to, to get looked at. And I was like, okay. And it was almost like a light bulb went off in her head. And like, she knew whatever it was that she saw, she knew. And um, they put her back over on the warmer 
And this is what really, in hindsight, drives me crazy, is that in the hour plus that we waited for her to go to the NICU to have a test done, they didn't even tell me what the test was going to be. They didn't tell me what they were going to do. They wouldn't, I mean, they didn't give me the baby. And I didn't even think to say like, hey, could I be holding her right now? I was just worried about her because I knew something was wrong. So I was like, I better not interfere. Like they better make sure that the baby's okay. So my family who was waiting out in the waiting room was eventually invited into the room to like see me and the baby. And they like went and stared at her at the warmer and like nobody touched her. I didn't touch her. <laughs> um, and then they came, someone came to take her to the NICU. Another hour goes by and they say, okay, mom, okay, dad, we're going to take you down to the NICU now to see baby. I'm like, okay. So they get me in a wheelchair and they take me to the NICU. At this point, I'm two hours postpartum. I have no idea what they're doing to the baby. Why? No clue. Um, they, they park me at the NICU and um, the nurse that parked my wheelchair looked at one of the other nurses and said, they don't know. And I was like, they don't know what. And the, the room kind of went silent. Like my husband and I were looking at each other. I was looking at her and it was just, it was awkward silence for a second. And then the NICU nurse was like, okay, like mom, come sit down, you know? And that's one thing I've realized is that they like to say mom a lot. I was just going to say, I, I, don't, I don't, I don't, it's so frustrating. Just I hate it. Name. Like, I hate it. Let's it's have it so condescending. Dentists do that too. Like if you go to a pediatric dentist, like mom, why don't you sit over here? Don't Mm -hmm. mom. I'm not your mom. I have a name. Go through the effort of learning my name. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, okay, mom, like, let's tell you what's going on here. So they basically told us that while the baby was in the NICU, they tried to pass a tube um, down her throat and it coiled back up and they got it on x-ray. So it showed that her esophagus ended in a pouch and it was not connected to her stomach. So she had a birth defect. It's a mouthful. It's called esophageal atresia with a tracheoesophageal fistula. So in the community, we abbreviate it E-A-T-E-F. Can you explain what each of those terms mean? So the first part and the second part? Yep. So esophageal atresia is where the esophagus it kind of grows in two parts, up from the stomach and down from your throat. And they are supposed to connect and fuse to make one beautiful pipe, one food pipe with all the nerve endings that we need to bring our food from our mouth down to our stomach. So the esophageal atresia is when the food pipe that grows in two parts, just they both stop, they never fuse. And you can be a long gap where it doesn't stop quite far apart, or you can be a short gap where it stops, you know, centimeters from each other and it just never made its way. And some kids have people, I should say, have pure esophageal atresia. That's what that is called. My daughter had the more common type, which is the kind that has a tracheoesophageal fistula. So that means that one of those ends actually connected to her trachea, which is her airway. So the reason why she looked good on ultrasound is because some amniotic fluid was actually getting into her stomach via her trachea. So she would aspirate and some of the fluid would get in and show a stomach bubble on an ultrasound. Is that a little bit preferable to the first one when she doesn't have that extra, that pouch at the bottom? It is very much, it is very much preferable because there's more to work with. So they clip it off from the trachea and they have an easier time connecting it to the part that exists already. 
as opposed to when there's not um, a lot of babies have to wait weeks, months on feeding tubes in the NICU. There's a procedure called the Fokker method where they um, they'll go in surgically and put magnets on each end of the esophagus the esophagus, and they'll wait until the magnets get closer and closer and closer and closer and finally touch. So they kind of like stretch it. Um, And so luckily, Indy had the best possible best outcome. Um, She was able to have surgery on day two of life. Um, So we are very lucky that that was the type she had. There's actually numerous different types. Hers is called type C, and it's the most common. So they told you this news. What was your... I think my husband and I were like dumbfounded. We were like, what? We've never even heard of this before. Like of all the things. And I think I remember saying, but I had so many ultrasounds. Like I had what? Like it, you, this, this can't be like, I remember thinking like, are we sure about this? But they showed us the x-ray and then they actually drew us on like the back of a scrap of paper. They drew us a, a diagram. Um, and they said she has to have surgery. And I said, Oh, okay. Um, all right, cool. When? And they were like, like now. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, so is she going to do that here? And they were like, no, we're, we're sorry. She has to go to like a really high level NICU. So that was really hard. And we held it together as best we could, my husband and I. And at this point, our families had left. So we were like, okay, um, call the family. Call, tell every, we got to tell everybody. So he calls his sister and says, can you take me to, to, to follow the ambulette? Um, so she comes back and, and takes my husband. And then I called my mom and I said, Hey, can you stay with me? Because I just had a baby two hours ago and I can't leave yet. They're telling me I can't leave yet. So I go back, Indy goes off, Steven goes off. He's with her. He's sending me pictures and stuff from the NICU. And I was supposed to stay 24 hours and I, I lasted seven <laughs> before I got up um, and I walked out against medical advice. I signed the papers and I left. Um, so I gave them one forced bowel movement. I took a shower where I sobbed. I finally was able to like cry. They wouldn't um, let you, they wouldn't let you leave until you had a bowel movement. <laughs> yeah. That is so silly. You had a vaginal birth. Like what the heck? Like. What they really wanted more than the bowel movement was blood work. For whatever reason, they wanted another round of blood work from me. So I said, here you go. Take it. (laughs) Um, And when it comes back, the second it comes back, I'm leaving. And that's what I did. So I got up and I walked out. And my mom took me over to the NICU. And when I walked into the NICU and I said, hi, uh, Eidelman, room 21, they were like, are you, are you mom? And I was like, here we go again with the mom, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yep, I'm I'm mom. Um, and they were like, oh my God, do you want, do you want a wheelchair? And like the adrenaline was so crazy. I was like, nope, I'm good. And I like strut in, I strut down the halls of the NICU, like eight, 10 hours postpartum um, to go and be by her side. So that's kind of the story of when we got to the NICU. And I will say that um, she she had her successful surgery on day two of life the next morning. And our 18-day NICU experience was a lot better than the one that we had at L&D. Um, but if this is the funny story that's going to come back now to the Candy Crush, is that one of those like million med students that was in the room with us um, during my delivery 
was so touched and so concerned by everything that transpired that she actually, um, the two hospitals are connected. So she was a student kind of like jumping around between the hospitals. She actually asked if she could be on, if she could switch her schedule and be on my daughter's surgery. And I didn't know this. And so we waited in the waiting room for her to come out of surgery. And when her surgeon came out, her name is Jen. Jen followed him. And I was like, what are you doing here? Like you were just holding my leg back at the other hospital. Um, and we kept in touch with her ever since, um, pretty much. And it was crazy because she sat down with us after and she was like, I have a, I have a question. I hope you don't mind. Can I ask you a kind of a personal question? I said, yeah, sure. And she goes, did it, did it bother you at all? The way that OB was acting, like playing on her phone and stuff. Like, did it bother you? And I was like, so happy and elated and riding this like massive high that my daughter had a, and a functioning esophagus and like was alive. And they literally, they saved her life. She was born incompatible with life and they, they made her compatible with life that I replied to her and I was like, no, I don't know. I didn't really think about it. I haven't really thought about it. Didn't really bother me. So, so Jen now is working in the air force. I believe she's an air force surgeon and once her Air Force commitment is up, that's when she's going to be um, starting her OB residency. And so, Jen, if you're listening, I care. <laughs> I cared about what she said. I just had to like I, I had to come down off of everything that was happening to me. So that was very interesting because the, even the med student was like, this doesn't seem right. It, it often takes us time to feel clear or offended about things like that that happen. Women put up with a lot of stuff in the world. And they always have a lot of abuses, a lot of harassment. And there is a part of the brain that just forces one, anyone in trauma, men, women, children to function and to say yeah. like, I can handle this. It's not a big deal. And then later you look back and you're just like, you know, you feel all the emotions with a little more perspective and clarity. The brain has yeah. to prioritize. The brain has to prioritize what to focus on. And in that moment you had far too many other important things to focus on than the candy crush. But as things settle down, you can start, you know, working through those lower level issues. And then you realize that, wow, that really was a big issue. It just wasn't the priority at the time. Finding the perfect pregnancy and breastfeeding bra is no easy task. Your search is now over. Meet Davin and Adley, a mother-owned pumping, nursing, and maternity bra company with a unique, comfortable, and stylish cropped cami. This item is perfect to wear all day long from day one of your pregnancy right through the end of your breastfeeding journey and probably beyond. The Amelia cami makes pumping and breastfeeding easy while looking and feeling good on your body. It works seamlessly for both wearable pumps and flange pumps, and you can breastfeed in it. It also has a beautiful stretch lace back. You can sleep in it, dress up in it, go out in it, whatever you want to do in it. And trust us, the quality in this item and all of their items are top notch. They're soft, durable, and attractive. These bras will truly go the distance. Davin and Adley carry a gorgeous selection of maternity and nursing wear, and they have an innovative one-piece breast pad that we've never seen anywhere else. So no more losing those solo breast pads, ladies. Go ahead and check out the full collection of maternity and nursing items at davinandadley.com and use your promo code down to birth to save 15%. All right, breastfeeding moms. 
Do you want to know one of our all-time favorite items for your nursing journey? If you know us, you probably could guess it. Yep, it's the Silverette Nursing Cup. These little nipple heroes not only protect, but also heal because they're made of real silver. It is naturally antimicrobial, antifungal, and anti-inflammatory. These little cups will be your best friend in the early sensitive weeks of breastfeeding your baby. And our favorite part is they last literally forever. You can pass them on just like you would a favorite piece of jewelry. Head on over to silverettusa.com and use promo code down to birth to save 15%. Correct. And it's funny because, you know, my husband, who's an amazing partner and amazing support, um, we've been through so much together that we've really just kind of grown as people. Um, I, I still don't think he 100% gets that part where he's like, but you didn't seem phased by it then. So why are you phased by it now? And that's the one thing where we like really differ, where where I'm like, I think you don't understand how shell-shocked I was. So, you know, I mean, he was too. Like we both have PTSD from this, but um, I guess it was a little bit different for me. Um, and the more I think about it and the more I really dive into um, learning about how capable I actually was, if I were given an opportunity to um, birth the right way, um, birth the way that I was meant to, um, I, I think I probably would have had a much better, a much better experience, even without my daughter's diagnosis, right? The diagnosis aside, there's so much about this experience that could have been handled more appropriately. So what happened Next, Liz, is there anything else about the story with Indy? And then how did this experience with Indy influence your choices around giving birth the second time? Yes. Um, so the last thing I will mention is that one issue that we did experience during our NICU stay was that it was hospital policy where I delivered to do the newborn heel prick screening before my baby was discharged. So typically, I'm sure you know, Trisha, especially that it's done after a full 24 hours once the baby has um, eaten and metabolized some milk. Obviously, Indy was not capable of eating anything. Um, so Unfortunately, hospital policy was more important than our experience, and they pricked her at three hours old, having not eaten anything. And unfortunately, that newborn screening came back suggesting we get additional testing to rule out cystic fibrosis because it came back abnormal. And this was terrifying. So when we asked about it at the NICU, they were very laissez-faire in their response, telling us like, oh, it's probably nothing. It's probably because they pricked her so early. But like after all we had been through, it was most definitely not nothing. And the cystic fibrosis test, which is a sweat test, has to be done months after a baby is born because babies don't produce sweat. So for a number of months, I had it kind of in the back of my mind. I was dealing with everything else that we were dealing with, her health. We had some back and forths to the hospital. Once we were discharged, it wasn't just like, okay, we're done now. Um, well, let, let's not forget that you also had, we're told over and over through many ultrasounds that right. it's probably just the variation of normal, which it often is. But right. you had just come out of that experience to right. then get another potentially falsely positive test after you just went through what you went through. Who's going to, who's going to roll with that? And, and Correct. Feel? Right. Okay, exactly. Sure. Just trust what you say. Right. 
Exactly. So that was a really necessary thing for them to put you through. Right. I mean, I was a new mom with clear PTSD, heartache, worry over like what the outcome of my child's life was going to be. I mean, I was Googling relentlessly trying to figure out, you know, what's the life expectancy? What are the complications? What like, you know, in the NICU at four o'clock in the morning in a pitch black room, I was sitting there like Googling all of the like, what if scenarios. And it's funny because now just coming back to my Instagram platform, um, moms and dads, some dads um, that are in the NICU with the same diagnosis will do the same thing. They will Google and they will find my birth story and they will send me a message and they will say, hi, I'm in the NICU right now. We're so scared. You know, seeing your daughter makes us so happy. Like, what is there anything you can tell us? And so I've actually created this little like sub platform of my own platform where I just have this community of families of children and some adults um, that have esophageal atresia. And it's been amazing to connect with them. And today, you know, Indy's thriving. She's crazy. <laughs> She's a crazy, happy four-year-old. Um, and I had a second healthy daughter in, in 2021. And so the way that she, the way that I kind of attacked that pregnancy was not as exciting as I would hope. But when I first found out I was pregnant with her, I had it in my mind that I wanted something different and I didn't know what. And it took until halfway through my pregnancy of getting a lot of rhetoric like, well, you know, you you needed a vacuum with your last baby, so we should definitely induce you this time. And you had high blood pressure last time, so you need to take the, the baby aspirin this time. And maybe you should just have a C-section. It would just be easier. Like literally, they were just slamming me with all kinds of excuses. And I felt like at this obese office, I felt like I had a scarlet letter on my chart from everything that happened. And they were just, they would, they looked at it and they were like, nope, like we got to just get this baby out. Um, so I was really irritated by that. And I fired my provider and I hired a group of midwives that deliver out of the hospital where Indy had been transported to this way. If God forbid the same thing were to happen again, um, at least we were there and we could avoid the transport. So I hired midwives and I hired a doula. All right, breastfeeding moms, do you want to know one of our all-time favorite items for your nursing journey? If you know us, you probably could guess it. Yep, it's the Silverette Nursing Cup. These little nipple heroes not only protect, but also heal because they're made of real silver. It is naturally antimicrobial, antifungal, and anti-inflammatory. These little cups will be your best friend in the early sensitive weeks of breastfeeding your baby. And our favorite part is they last literally forever. You can pass them on just like you would a favorite piece of jewelry. Head on over to silverettusa.com and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH to save 15%. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sitz bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, 
S-O-O-T-H-E dot com and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Would you mind explaining or exploring why you're crying more now than you were through telling your story? It's like the PTSD memory is making you more emotional. Yeah. You were in the middle of a, a second pregnancy and it was healthy. What was happening for you? Why are you so emotional thinking about that second pregnancy? Um, I just think that I wish that I could have. I wish I, there's so much I wish I had done differently about it. Um, and I feel like I figured things out a little too late. And yeah, I guess it's just a little bit of regret because I don't know if I'll have another baby. I hope so. I hope I have another chance and another opportunity because <clears throat> I do now really believe that I am capable and um, I'm informed and I'm, I feel ready. I feel at peace with the experiences that I've had. But for my second daughter, like I switched to midwives and I hired this doula and I wound up with a C-section the second time after a vaginal birth, the first time, um, my daughter, my second daughter had an asynclitic presentation, which we only found out after the fact, um, my daughter was head down, but her head was kind of like tucked to the side a little bit, like cocked to the side. Mm -hmm. um, right. So it wasn't the most narrow part that was trying to come through my pelvis. And from my understanding, the baby's head pressing down on the pelvis is the way that your cervix ultimately will fully dilate from all that pressure. But if they're not... Actually, Rachel Reed just published an article saying that that's a longstanding fallacy. <sighs> Is it really? It is. But but an asynclitic presentation of the baby is definitely um, often a very, one of the best reasons for a C-section because if, if, the, you know, if the head mm. isn't well positioned, you need the head yeah. to be well positioned for, for the birth to go smoothly. And sometimes it's so poorly positioned, it, it, it cannot happen vaginally. The head has yeah. to, the head actually has to pass through a, a slight asynclitic position, but it can get stuck in that position. Um, and when it gets stuck in that position, it can't proceed further. Yeah. And that's what happened. I spiked a little bit of a low grade fever and the baby was having some decelerations and it had been 24 hours of an induction. I should add, I was induced the second time and I did not want to be. And I agreed to the induction at 40 weeks because my second daughter had at her anatomy scan, we found a single umbilical artery. Um, so she had an umbilical cord abnormality. And the midwives, again, I'm like with the let, you know, they're like, we'll let you go to 40 weeks. But then because you have this umbilical cord issue, you know, I think I was just so influenced by everyone else and my prior circumstances and what the professionals were telling me, quote unquote, um, that I wasn't listening to myself. And Cynthia, to answer your question, I think that's why I do get more emotional over the second birth. Um, because I felt like that was my chance to kind of like redeem myself and really have an empowering experience. And I felt like I did, I did things to help me get there. Um, but ultimately I just, I continued to 
worry about what was being told to me and not what was actually like inside telling me like everything's going to be okay. Um, so yeah, my daughter was born. She's 21 months now. She's healthy. Liz, um, do you believe she was asynclitic because of anything that was done to you? Or do you believe she was destined to be asynclitic regardless? No, I think that the induction is really the problem, you know, forcing it. Did they break your waters early too? Yep. Yep. That's a risk factor for breaking a woman's waters. When did they do that? Oh, well, for her, they did. They started the induction with a Foley um, catheter. And then after that was when they started the Pitocin. And then I would say the next day. So my waters had been broken for less time with my second baby. But they did it um, when you were dilating. They just broke your waters. Yeah. What did they tell you? Why were they doing it? That's a, that's a really terrible procedure. They really it's, should it's, never do it. It's been part of the protocol of induction for so long. And even though the yeah. research now says it doesn't, doesn't speed anything up, it's not helpful. It's, it's, still it's done. incredibly risky. And, and even if it were to speed up labor, which, it, which most research shows it doesn't at all. And even ACOG says it doesn't. So even they, they, they're erring on the side of, no, it doesn't. Um, it's, it's loaded with risks and dramatically drives up C-section rates. And I, I just wonder, like, even, even if it didn't have those risks, we have to consider any, any intervention whose greatest attribute is that it speeds up labor. That's always a warning. Why are we speeding up labor? Why are we intervening just for the sake of speeding it up? Unless there's a reason to like, get this baby out right now. But that's not, that's not normally the conditions. When No, no, there was no reason to get her out at that point. I mean, they just all had this weird fear around the umbilical cord. And I'm probably, uh, I'm sure it was probably amplified by the fact that I have a child with a serious birth defect um, that was undetectable on ultrasound. So I'm sure everybody had it in the back of their minds, like, okay, this baby might need X, Y, and Z. Um, Liz, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt again. Trisha, what about the umbilical cord artery? What about it? Well, what about what? It's, it's kind of common. We hear from a lot of women who have that. And I, it's my, it's been my impression that it isn't really a very big deal, but Liz was treated as, as though it was. So What's your opinion on it or what's the consensus on it? Well, the idea, again, most of the time it is completely benign, mm-hmm. um, similar to what you were told about the polyhydramnios. Sometimes it is associated with anomalies. And then the idea, the, the thought is that as you progress in pregnancy and get later post dates, post term, which is not 40 weeks, by the way, yeah. um, they get concerned about, you know, perfusion of the placenta. So I think you are absolutely right that everybody was just a little gun shy about letting you go longer based on your past experience, but truly there actually was no medical indication for induction in your second pregnancy. And that is why it's hard to process because knowing what you know now and looking back, you can feel like, oof, maybe I didn't need to do that. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. But we couldn't have said it better myself. We can't beat ourselves up over things that we don't know, number one, and we can't underestimate the influence of that post-traumatic stress on our decision-making. You can't, it's so hard to come at it with a clear head. In retrospect, you can look back now and be like, well, she was fine. She's healthy. I could have done it. Right. But you didn't know that in the moment. 
No, there was a lot of things I didn't know. I mean, she had a nuchal cord and I was like, oh, thank God we did a C-section. She had the cord wrapped around her neck and, you know. Which also doesn't matter. Yeah. Now I know that that's that's not even a thing um, in most cases. So, you know, it's... It, it was, it is very, it's harder to process her second birth because it's like, I see that. Yeah. Yeah. Liz, how did this whole experience change you? When you think about your wedding day and you never imagine that you and your husband are going to go through something like this together, you're definitely a changed woman. Oh yeah. How, I mean, it, you must've changed so, so much because of these experiences and clearly they were traumatic and difficult, but I'm also sensing that it's changed you in some ways that are serving you and your family. What do you yeah. think about that? Yeah, How has it, it absolutely you? has. How? Um, I mean, I will say I've always been, let's start with the negatives. I've always been an anxious person. And I think my anxiety is way worse. Um, I think with, after my first, I had no chance to even, um, experience any kind of postpartum, postpartum anxiety or depression, but I definitely had have postpartum anxiety after my second. Um, which I have, you know, I've seeked help for. Um, so I think it has made me more anxious. It has made me hyper vigilant about my health and my kids' health. My my anxiety is really rooted in health. If you spoke to my ther- therapist, it would be that I have health anxiety, and that makes perfect sense. Um, so that's the negative. Um, but the positive is that I have used my platform to be such an advocate for people with this condition and even for educating other people who have never heard of this condition before. Um, Because as I was saying, when they first gave us a diagnosis, my husband and I had never heard of this. And so many parents of EA kids say the same thing. And now I get to have this little corner of the internet where I'm educating so many people uh, on this and it just feels really good um, to be her advocate. And I've, I've also learned how to be her advocate in the medical setting because it's not cut and dry. She's had several other procedures, surgeries, incidents, um, despite being an overall healthy and active kid, like she does have a medical complexity, um, and the amount of fighting for lack of better term that I have had to do on her behalf is the kind of fighting I wish I could have done for myself. I go to bat for this kid day in and day out. Um, and, you know, as a mom, sometimes you you forget to do that for yourself until it comes to like a certain point. And then you're like, no, 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 no. This, it's about me now. So that's the way it's changed me in a positive way. I think it's really helped me to come into those shoes. And um, as I said in the beginning, I'm training now to become a doula. And I, after having two less than stellar birth experiences and experience with postpartum anxiety and PTSD, um, medical complexities, I mean, I've had just this whole kind of like roster of experience um, with surrounding hospital birth, especially, I really just want to help other women come to that conclusion and step into those shoes the first time or the second time, you know, I don't, I don't don't, love that. You don't want them to have the traumatic experience in order to learn what they would benefit from learning the first time around. Yeah. And listen, sometimes there's no, there's nothing that can stop you from having a traumatic experience. Like I said, with my daughter, 
her diagnosis was a surprise for us. So even if I had some magical dream home water birth with twinkle lights and affirmations all over the walls, like just a perfect scenario, it would have come crashing down in five seconds. Oh yeah. Do we know why esophageal atresia occurs? So my daughter is a member of the um, esophageal atresia and airway clinic out of Columbia, New York Presbyterian. They're doing incredible work because they care for our kids, but they're also a research hospital. So they're a research clinic. So they're researching our kids. So we um, immediately all gave blood and saliva um, to be a part of a really big genetic study that they're doing to try and find out if there is a genetic link. Um, And one thing that I can say is that they have not found a specific genetic link yet. However, through my my own community outreach um, and like getting to know families all over, um, I have met a couple of families where it has reoccurred in interesting ways. So I know an adult EATF type C woman who had twins via IVF and one of them was the long gap type, type A, and another, the other one was type C. And then she had a singleton after that who was healthy. So there has to be some kind of a genetic component. We just um, haven't found it yet because interestingly enough, um, the first EA repair that was successful was I think 81 years ago. So chances are, you know, someone that's older than the first repair. And before that baby would have just died. How common is it? That's a one in every uh, 4,500 live births. It's um, it's crazy because we don't really know why it happens. And for a lot of people, it is a fluke. I mean, there's families that go on to have numerous children and only one of them has it. And there's no history of anything. Um, so yeah, when I find out, I'll be sure to let you guys know. But we are on a constant crusade to try and figure out, you know, hopefully at some point during Indy's lifetime, she'll know. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in, and as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. Well, you told it very well for not having spoken about it before. Thank you. How did it feel telling it? It felt really good, and and it was... um... It is interesting to hear that I felt so much more um, emotion around the second birth, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed it out because I don't think I would have really thought about it until after the fact. And I'm like, you know what? That birth really did affect me more. And I think that's why I am wanting to do this now, like after Stevie's birth, because Stevie's birth had a whole different impact on me. It was like, you know, this could have been avoided. So it felt good getting that out. Thank you. I'm so happy to have done this. You guys are the best.